Welcome to The Jewish Diasporist, a podcast exploring the political, social, and cultural implications of life in diaspora. Last episode I wasn't here for the intro, but today I'm your host, Zach Smerin. And today we continue our travels across the diaspora by visiting the capital of Austria. Vienna not only has a rich Jewish history, tragically undercut by the Holocaust, it has also, despite the odds, been remarkably revitalized to become a hub for a thriving Jewish communal life today. Currently, there are about 25 synagogues and prayer houses active in the city, four Jewish schools, a bat mitzvah club, a yeshiva, and a Jewish university. There are also Jewish sports clubs, an orchestra, eight youth movements, and as many political groupings, including one bearing a familiar name, that are vying for power in the elected board of the community, the IKG. They represent a diverse range of Jews, the modern Orthodox, Reform, Hasidic, Bukharan, Georgian, and others. All of this in a community that has only 10,000 registered members. What historical pathways led to such cultural richness today? We have the perfect guide to help us navigate this environment. Idol is a board member of the Jö, the Jewish Students' Union of Austria, an editor for its magazine Nudnik, a tour guide in Stadttempel, the oldest remaining synagogue, and has been involved in many other local initiatives, including the dialogue project Likrat. She also, coincidentally, happens to be my partner. Join us for a fascinating conversation, but just before that, we would like to thank all of our new listeners, especially those from a certain burgeoning movement, you know who you are. Please follow us on our social media. The Instagram is about to get a lot more active. Please also subscribe subscribe to us on our YouTube, which we are now sharing with the Making Mensches podcast. We are very proud to be producing an episode for you every two weeks, but we also recognize that it takes a lot of time and money for us. If we are to not only continue our work, but also expand it in quality and quantity, we can use any help we can. If you are able to, do consider giving us a monthly donation on Patreon. Even a dollar, pound, euro, a month will massively help us. Link is in the description. Now, let's get on with the episode. I am currently studying and working in Vienna. I was born and raised in Vienna most of my life. And I was also raised in a Hasidic household, which means I speak to my father in Yiddish and I spoke to most of my friends in Yiddish up until the age of 10. I'm very much engaged in the Jewish community in several organizations. The Jewish community is called the IKG. IKG stands for the Israelitische Kulturskemal. The Israelite Jewish community, which is recognized by the state of Austria. You said you grew up Hasidic. What was the transition away from that kind of life like? A lot of the time when we hear about stories of people that leave Haredi communities, we hear about it from the very sort of radical escape in the way that you see it, for example, on Unorthodox, the Netflix TV show. Was that your experience? No, not at all. I never officially left the Hasidic community. In fact, I'm still very well connected with the Hasidic community up until this day. I would just make the claim that my Jewish identity today is more versatile than it used to be. I just share many different values today, which might be a product of my upraising. What do you see as like the core element of Hasidism that you still kind of engage with? As you say, you haven't had like a really radical break from it. So many of my friends that I still communicate with are Hasidic. I also share many values that can be considered 
Hasidic values, for example, modesty. Some people believe also generosity might be a Hasidic value as well. I was also just asking because I've been very interested in neo-Hasidism, which is a little bit different from traditional Hasidism in the fact that it is much more focused on progressive politics and such. But I have been familiar with the term avodat gashmias or corporeal labor. Uh, are you familiar with that term at all? Yes, I am familiar with that term. Yes, it's a very interesting phenomena. Neo Hasidicism, Jews, Hasidic Jews trying to reconcile modernity with traditional Hasidicism where they have internet but they make sure that their internet is kosher internet, where they do try to get themselves involved in the workplace but they might practice gender segregation within that workplace. That's a very interesting phenomenon that emerged over the course of the 21st century. Yeah, I think it's even the 20th century you have some early people who might, like Martin Buber could be considered a neo-Hasid and especially Abraham Joshua Heschel in the United States, I know, has been associated with the neo-Hasidic movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. There's some interesting names to mention in that context. Idol, you are probably one of the best people to tell us a little bit about the history of the Jewish community in Vienna. Since when have Jews been in Vienna? What has their life been like? And how does that connect to the community that exists in Vienna today? The first documented mentioning of a Jewish person in Vienna was in the year 1196. His name was Shlomo or Shalom, we're not sure how to pronounce his name. He made coins for the emperor and cultivated a vineyard. Two years after his arrival, he was murdered together with 15 other family members by the crusaders. We do believe that Jewish existence in Vienna already starts before Shlomo, the first documented mentioning of a Jewish person in Vienna, because we found coins that originated from Judea, which is Israel today. We believe that those coins date back to the arrival of the Roman army. We're not sure whether they came as slaves, as soldiers, as people accompanying the Roman army, but Jewish existence might have started here in Vienna way earlier than the Middle Ages. Shlomo was persecuted to death and I think that mirrors what Jews have experienced time and again during the centuries since. Periods of acceptance when they were able to build a life for themselves in the city have been followed by periods of persecution and expulsion. The first Jewish community settled down at Judenplatz, which is in the city center today. It wasn't a ghetto, they didn't have curfews, they voluntarily decided to settle at Judenplatz. They had their own mikveh, their own hospital, their own butcher, and in the year 1400 we count 800 to 900 Jews, which were about 5% of the city population. The Shoah was the most significant, but not the only turning point in the history of Vienna's Jewish community. In the year 1420-1421, the Wiener Xerat took place, also known as the Wiener Unheil. Duke Albert V decided to get rid of the Jews. He locked in the wealthier Jews in their synagogue and tried to forcefully baptize mothers and children. The Jews that were locked in the synagogue decided it's better to commit suicide than to convert to Christianity. Now you might think it reminds you of Masada, and that does. Suicide is strongly prohibited in Judaism, so this event is actually widely discussed up until this day. How did they do it? They wrote each person's name on a piece of paper, and only the person 
whose name was chosen, had to take upon himself the sin of killing everyone else first and then killing themselves. It's called the Goral in Hebrew. The poorer Jews, I'm talking of 800 to 900 Jews, were sent out to boats on the Danube River without oars, and that meant that most of them, unfortunately, either drowned or froze to death, because you must imagine the Danube River isn't as regulated as we know it today. Those who did survive would reach Bohemia, where a beautiful Jewish community flourished. The leftover Jews surviving the entire deal so far were burnt at the stake, like the witches were burnt back then in Erdberg in the third district today. Up until this day, there's no memorial. In the next 150 years, there's barely any Jewish life in Vienna. Only in the 16th century, Jews started coming back. One question that I often receive from my visitors in Stadttempel is why did Jews decide to come back after they've been terribly haunted? And my answer is quite simple. Jews didn't have a choice. They would settle anywhere they could, anywhere they were allowed to settle, or anywhere they were invited to settle, even if that meant they had to pay an extra poll tax. Even if that meant that this time they can only settle in Leopoldstadt, which is today known as the second district, we still call it Leopoldstadt. It was a ghetto this time, so they had curfews, they had security guards, they were not really allowed to leave. In the year 1670, 1671, Emperor Leopold I decided to expel the Jews from Vienna. He tore down the synagogue at Alexander Pochplatz, it's right around where I live, and he built on that spot the Church of Leopold, which exists till this day. In fact, I pass it almost every single day and have to think about it almost every single day. Today we also call the second district Leopoldstadt in honor of the Emperor Leopold for expelling the Jews from Vienna. So I think when we're talking about names, it's really important to raise awareness and to to question them. Is that commemorated? Um, no, we have no commemoration about that. It's not talked about and I'm part of the Austrian Jewish Students Union. One thing we try to do is raise awareness regarding these issues. So for example, if I believe it was two years ago, we tore down problematic street names that were Nazis or neo-Nazis, and we renamed those streets after famous Jewish resistance fighters. We did it at midnight and we went viral. <laughs> As you will see, Austria has come a long way, but there's still a lot of work to be done up until this day. Where have I heard that before? Now the question becomes, I mentioned two Jewish communities existing here in Vienna. When were Jews welcome in the city again when money was needed? Money lenders were called for. Samuel Oppenheimer was the first to come to Vienna, and he bought the Seegasse Cemetery in 1686, brought it back into use. Around 1700, other wealthy families moved to Vienna, including the Wertheimers and the Schlesingers. They were regarded as so-called court Jews and always had to pay a high price for being allowed to stay. They contributed to the construction of the Karlskirche, the court library, but also the Schönbrunn Palace. The Oppenheimers, Wertheimers and Schlesingers were all Ashkenazi Jews. However, when peace was agreed with Turkey, dozens of Sephardic Jews also came to Vienna. In 1736, a Sephardic community association was established. This was to remain prohibited to Vienna as Ashkenazi Jew. That's quite interesting considering that Jews in Turkey at that time weren't considered to be a parallel society the way they were considered here in Vienna. They were considered to be Turkish citizens and that was definitely not the case here in Vienna. In the year 1782 the patent of toleration was initiated by Joseph II. Joseph II was the son of Maria Theresia and he slowly moved forward with the emancipation process. So what does that mean? It 
meant that from now on, Jews can go to universities. Many new job fields were opened up to them. Still, they cannot own private property or have public prayer services. So it wasn't really an emancipation strategy according to today's standards of emancipation. It was very much an attempt to use the Jews back then for the growing economical development and to steer assimilation among them, of course. In the year 1848, there's a famous Austrian revolution, the equivalence of the French Revolution, Jewish doctor Adolf Fischhof stood in front of the Landhof in the Herrengasse and formulated the key demands of the revolution, including a freedom of religion, the press, learning and teaching. What happened that year as well? Franz Josef, the Emperor Franz Josef, ascended the throne in the year 1848. He was the one to complete the Jewish emancipation process. In 1852, the establishment of a Jewish community association was finally permitted, and in 1858, the biggest synagogue in Europe was built, the Leopoldstädter Tempel, and that synagogue was in Vienna, on Tempelgasse, which is in the second district today. The synagogue, unfortunately not, it did not survive the November pogrom night of 1938. And since then, Stadttempel became the main and most important of the Jewish community here in Vienna. Just so that you can imagine, that synagogue encompassed 2,000 sitting places and 2,000 standing places, whereas Stadttempel only encompasses 700 sitting places. Architect was Ludwig Wörster. He is also known for designing the Dohani synagogue in Budapest. I oftentimes tell my visitors to just go to Budapest and see the synagogue over there, which is, I believe, the biggest synagogue in Europe today. Many people say Ludwig Förster was a bit lazy, he just copy-pasted his style. So if you want to have a picture of how beautiful that synagogue used to be, you can just go to Budapest. The design of the Temple Synagogue in Krakow, which I believe is 1861-62, is based on Stadt Temple. Krakow was then part of the Austrian Empire. Yes, battles were not all fought and won immediately, and restrictions on Jews remained until 1867. But in 1852, more and more Jews moved from eastern parts of the Empire to Vienna, many of whom were neither rich nor highly educated, worked as laborers, tradesmen, peddlers, often living in very precarious conditions, and really struggling to feed their children. The textile trade was of particular significance when it came to social advancement. Now, Jews started playing a very important role as patrons of the arts and sponsors of social institutions. They became scientists, doctors, lawyers, economists, you name it. During that time, there was a very strong clash of the Orthodox community against the Reform community. The Orthodox community was growing, as I mentioned, and in the 1860s, there were 11 Orthodox prayer houses. They did not feel welcome at all, since the Jewish community was mostly led by Reform Jews. They said, we do not want to be part of this liberal Jewish community, and we will exit the Jewish community in that case. The head of the community, his name was Jelinek, decided to find a company and he said unity is the most important value. So this compromise is reflected upon in Stadttempel, for example. You can see that Stadttempel practices gender segregation, but there are still many reform influences at the same time. Certain text passages are to be spoken quietly instead of loudly. We have a choir, which is very unusual. We also have the translation of prayers into German for the first time in history. So those who did not speak or read Hebrew or Lashon HaKodesh were not 
now able to participate in the prayer service. And I think that raises a very interesting question because disputes within the Jewish community always existed. We can learn a lot about the way they handled it and that they managed to find a middle ground. 1867, under the Emperor Franz Josef, Jews were recognized as equal citizens. He moved forward with what's called the Staatsgrundgesetz, the basic law on the general rights of nationals. Then the Jewish community grew even more quickly. So in 1860, it numbered 6,200 Jews, but was already up to 40,000 by 1870 and to 147,000 by around 1900. You talk about a massive expansion of the Vienna Jewish community from like 1860 to 1900. And I think it's very interesting interesting when you look at the context of the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the time, because you do have Jews like the Galician Jews in the east of the empire who were all speaking Yiddish, and then you had more traditionally German Jews in Vienna that might be the more well-established community at the time. So I'm like very interested in the way, if you know how, how those communal dynamics played out, because you mentioned as well the reform community was prominent and present within Vienna, and I think that might be a good time to make the point that, as I learned in my own research, you do have some very interesting trends about German Jewish assimilation in communities across the German-speaking lands. And to some extent, that meant that a lot of Jews were actively converting from Judaism and trying to fully assimilate into German nationhood. But you also do have the emergence of reform, which sought to transform Judaism from a broader cultural identity into a more palatable, acceptable, in a European sense, religious identity. And I think it's very interesting that you say that there is this massive influx in Vienna over that 40-year period. And I was wondering if you know about how that dynamic may have played out amongst those more Yiddish-speaking Jews coming from the east of the empire and how they engaged with that existing, more traditionally German-Jewish community that was already there in Vienna before that. That's a very good point you make. There was this famous separation of the East Jews and the West Jews. The East Jews were the Orthodox ones, those who were grounded in Orthodoxy, those who were very poor, they lived in one-room apartments. And the West Jews, as you said, were the intellectuals, the educated, the more wealthy ones, the assimilated ones. There definitely were many clashes. It played out in several ways, as I mentioned, it played out in a very certain way in Stadttempel, which is an orthodox synagogue. But the answer to the question whether Stadttempel is an orthodox synagogue is not so simple because there were definitely many attempts from all corners to revolutionize the synagogue, to even have an organ put behind the steel bone. And now this idea was quickly cancelled. People said an organ would go way too far. But yes, you definitely had this division. Was that a broader cultural division as well? Do you know? Yes. I mean, it was this religious division was very much intertwined with the cultural division. The Orthodox Jews usually also spoke Yiddish. I mean, everyone spoke Yiddish, but many of those who were assimilated, many of the liberal Jews, actually gave up speaking Yiddish and started learning German. They would dress in modern German clothing. They started reading Lessing and Goethe. One third of all students were Jewish, even though the Jewish population was only 10% in pre-war times. 50% of all doctors and lawyers were Jewish as well. So there is some truth to the saying that Jews were more German than the Germans themselves. There is a figure who actually comes from Jewish roots in the Austrian social democratic movement at the early 1900s, and that was Otto Bauer. And Otto Bauer kind of pioneered the idea of national and cultural autonomy, which was later taken up by the Bund, as well in the Jewish context in the Russian Empire. But what I found was really interesting 
interesting about Otto Bauer's approach to his Jewish identity was that while he believed that nationalities should have the right to have cultural autonomy within the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and this was seen as a way to kind of integrate the extremely ethnically diverse Austro-Hungarian Empire, he also did not believe that it applied to Jews. And this was very interesting to read about because he actually argued that the Eastern European Jews, the Yiddish-speaking Jews, the only reason they were still culturally distinct was that they were actually like pre-modern. He had a very teleological view of history, saying that as they became more modern, as they integrated into the modern world, they would just kind of become more German, more integrated in the cultures that they lived, and lose that specifically Jewish cultural identity. I mean, of course, he was a Marxist, so he was very much against religion, so he was also against having a Jewish religious identity. I think it's just a very interesting point in how the socialists, specifically across that empire, were engaging with Jewishness in ways that were very, I think, problematic. They were really embracing the tendency towards assimilation, which is evident in Karl Marx's own politics, but also Jewish-born German radical Heinrich Hein, who was very influential in the pre-German nation radical German movement uh, as a nationalist, as a romantic nationalist. But it kind of negated the possibility for Jews to play a role in actually integrating the empire as Jews. They either had to assimilate into the cultural identities they lived among. Then you had the Bund, who said, actually, we can be Jews and be fighting for national cultural autonomy in the places we live. And there was a weird dynamic where those German Jewish intellectuals were so assimilated that they kind of negated the possibility of continuing Yiddish as a secular progressive culture. So I guess the question I'd like to attach to this point is, what was the status of Yiddish within Vienna around the turn of the 20th century? Yiddish was, like you say, very much connected to orthodoxy unless you found a new way of finding a liking to the language which wasn't attached to orthodoxy like the Bund did. Ben-Gurion even said that orthodoxy was an anachronism that would soon disappear. And I do find it interesting that Yiddish still managed to prevail despite all odds. As you say, many Jews were so assimilated, they also did not want to have anything to do with the Yiddish language. I know that my grandma used to say in Yiddish this famous idiom, whatever happened to the general Christian society also affected the Jewish society very much. So the assimilated Jews tried having a Jewish equivalent to everything the Christians had. So if the church had a beautiful stage, now they also want to have a beautiful stage in their own synagogue as well. And they want to have a choir, which was also quite unusual for those times. The choir exists till this day and my brother was part of the choir. He's not anymore because he's now a camper in Salzburg. But yes, it's definitely very interesting and I think it raises a very interesting question. Namely, the Holocaust emerged from those countries where the Jews tried the hardest to assimilate. So I asked myself whether integration or assimilation or trying really hard to please your host is really a powerful tool to make a society conflict-free. And I also think you touched on another very important subject, namely Reform Judaism. So as we know, Reform Judaism emerged from European countries. The Hashkala, the Jewish Enlightenment, was extremely powerful in Germany and Austria compared to other European countries. And yet Reform Judaism did not really sustain itself after the war. Instead, it shifted its focus to the United States. So yes, you have this whole reform movement starting back then and then relocating itself to the United States. We're talking a little about social democrats, the 20th century. Of course, Vienna becomes a very strong bastion of social democracy in the interwar period. But there are two very important historical figures between the 19th and 20th century in Vienna. One is Franz Josef, and I know just from having spoken of Idol before, the importance 
importance of Franz Josef, while still a monarch and an authoritarian monarch in the Habsburg Empire, nevertheless a figure of unity between all the different nationalities, including Jews, that would not be sustained to the same extent in many of the smaller national ethnostates after World War One. And the second one is Karl Luger, who was the mayor of Vienna from the Christian Social Party, which would itself become a force in the interwar period, and then afterwards its new formation in the Austrian People's Party, which is currently in government in Austria. Can you tell us a little bit about Karl Luger and his legacy as it stands today? And this will be our slow transition towards talking about the modern Jewish community in Vienna. Mm -hmm. I also like the fact that you mentioned both names within the same sentence, because they did hate each other back then. Kaiser Franz Josef was very popular among Jews. He did not just complete the Jewish emancipation process, but he would take many minorities under his wing. Also the Muslim minority, for example. One of the things he used to say in German was, Lass meine Juden in Ruhe, which means, leave my Jews alone. And there are some stories of Franz Josef meeting Carlo Eger. In certain settings he had to meet him, he gave him the side eye. Apparently, that's uh, one story that's told a lot. He used to hate Carlo Eger. Who was Carlo Eger? He was the role model of Hitler. Some people say one of the first politicians to instrumentalize anti-Semitism in his political rhetoric. One of the things he also did was create many beautiful parks. <laughs> so we have a statue standing up until this day in the first district, a statue of Karl Eger. As I mentioned before, the Austrian Jewish Students' Union is very critical of these statues and of names, and we try to constantly undermine things, to question them, and Karl Eger is a very problematic figure for us. Recently, they decided to install a beautiful art construction right next to the statue to display all the beautiful parks he created and all the beautiful things he's done. For us, it's <laughs> and we have been protesting against it for many years. We had many campaigns, a few petitions, and his statue is still standing today. It's tilted a little bit, but it won't stand there one day, hopefully, or at least we want to have some kind of memorial or sign explaining all the atrocities he can be seen responsible for. It's one of the few things where the year, as much as I'm very proud of being part of the year, the Austrian Jewish Students' Union, it's one of the things that we did not succeed yet. We were Will succeed one day. You mentioned that it's tilted. Why is it tilted? They tilted it, decided to tilt it in a way to show that this guy needs to be humbled a little bit. <laughs> I don't really see the tilt when I'm there. It's quite controversial and I think we're on our way to succeed one day. There's one way to see that as like him having a tilted or slanted legacy. I'd like to rather prefer seeing it as he's starting to fall down. <laughs> And one day it'll fall down the rest of the way. Yeah, I think it's tilted about three degrees, and that cost half a million euros. So um, I don't know how much it's going to cost to tilt it a full uh, 90 degrees. Nothing. There, there is um, several very important Jewish historical figures connected to Vienna. Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, Sigmund Freud, Theodor Herzl. One thing that you mentioned already, and you called it by a specific name, the November pogrom in the interwar period. Now, most Jews know of this event around the world as Kristallnacht. But why do you call it the November Pogrom? Thanks for mentioning that. The term Kristallnacht is a term used by the Nazis to beautify the actual event that took place. Therefore, here in Austria, we coined a new word called the November Pogrom Night, 1938. Crystal Night is definitely a euphemism, I would say. Hmm. 
No, I think that's an interesting point that I actually hadn't thought about in the way we talk about it. Why are we using the Nazis term for it when it's just a pogrom? And I think it's important to recontextualize it as part of a broader history of pogroms in Europe. We earlier did mention the idea of neo-Hasidism, which I think does have a lot of resonance for a lot of people who do have more progressive Jewish politics, but also kind of understand their Judaism through a more spiritual or religious lens. Of course, this is about a broader trend within the Jewish community, but as I mentioned German Jewish history is interesting and it's often overshadowed by the Holocaust, but you do have this large trend of assimilation within the German Jewish community. Because of that, you have some very different dynamics in progressive Jewish politics compared to Eastern Europe, where like with the Bund, it was much more bound up with cultural understanding of Jewishness. But in the 1920s and 30s in the interwar period, left-wing German Jewish intellectuals like Martin Buber, Walter Benjamin, Gershom Sholem, to name a few, they pioneered a spiritual orientation towards Jewishness that was really grounded in progressive exegesis of Jewish texts and history that I think represented a distinction between the progressive Jewish politics of further Eastern Europe and more Central Europe. I think that shift from rooting our progressive Jewish politics in a spiritual understanding of Jewishness is quite significant for those of us that are in more assimilated Jewish communities, whether that be in the US or frankly, most Jewish communities are at least acculturated. And I think that that was quite significant because you do have historically, like I mentioned about Otto Bauer and the traditional Marxists having like a very anti-theist, anti-religious conception of politics that led them to kind of oppose Judaism as a religion and also at the same time kind of oppose the Yiddish cultural identity as like a pre-modern construct or a pre-modern phenomenon that ended up kind of negating Jewishness. But then you had a renaissance, frankly, in the interwar period of different thinking around Jewishness that I think has a lot of resonance today. Coming from that Hasidic background, I think it's very interesting and being from a German-speaking country is also very interesting where you can have a very interesting synthesis of your identity around how you relate to these different phenomenon. I was wondering what you think is the significance of religious and cultural Judaism and the relationship to being part of what one might call a German culture nation, as I think the German term is, especially in regard to Jews with progressive politics. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I would make the claim, especially since you related to today's community that many people don't care as much about religiosity as much as they care about the sense of community. We have a very strong sense of community, which very much builds your identity. And in modern times, we also have multiple identities. A sense of community entails exclusiveness to some extent. But then again, I believe most of us today have multiple and manifold identities belong to several communities and the borders between them can be fluid. Now, I don't think I've answered your question. Um, your question was, how does the culture... No, I just want to say that I think that's a really interesting point. And as we've been doing this podcast, I think the question of how Jews relate to the conception of nationality itself is a really interesting one where we've had Bruno saying like, oh, I'm not born in the Czech Republic, but I consider myself a Czech Jew or saying like, yeah, I'm, I consider myself a Ukrainian Jew. And I think the relationship between our Jewish identities and our national identities is really interesting to think about. And I think your articulation of how the boundaries between our manifold identities are rather fluid is really well put and I think it's important to emphasize that. But my question was really like how 
how a more cultural conception of Judaism versus a more religious conception of Judaism might relate to your identity as a German speaker within Austria and what is the way that you relate to these different elements of Jewishness within your identity. Gotcha. So especially relating to my own experience coming from the Hasidic community, I must say I was quite surprised finding out that Yiddish enjoys a renaissance beyond the Hasidic community. It was extremely interesting to me since for me the language was only associated with the Hasidic community. Now I must say it resonates with me because I do really like the Yiddish language and I have found new ways to connect with the language that is beyond being religious. That's my personal story. I enjoy Yiddish movies, books, Yiddish music that aren't necessarily orthodox in one way or another. So I would say my Jewish identity today is quite versatile. I can identify with many different communities at the same time. I do feel that I am welcomed by many different communities and that I have a place and a say in many different communities. Maybe I also try to negotiate. Maybe I see myself in between those communities and I try to be a bridge builder, which I am in the very famous dialogue project Likrat. Likrat means to approach one another. It's one of the eight youth organizations, eight Jewish youth organizations that we have in Vienna that combats anti-Semitism. We try to engage with non-Jews to go into classrooms, talk about Judaism and anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, you name it. We even talk about the Middle East conflict, but we do have a year training before we send out our Likratinos and Likratinas into the classroom. And I must say this project, even though it was meant for engagement with the so-called outside world, it has brought many Jews together. So we had Hasidic Jews, Sephardi Jews, Bukhari Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, religious from liberal to orthodox coming together because we all have one goal, namely to fight anti-Semitism and to engage in a dialogue, which I think is a very beautiful thing to do. You're already touching a little bit on the community today. I think it's as well interesting for it to come from an outsider perspective. When I came to Vienna, I was just very, very impressed with the level of organization that exists within the Jewish community. And also the level of Jewish visibility, frankly, especially in Leopoldstadt. In Vienna, generally, there are around 20 synagogues, active synagogues. You mentioned already eight youth movements. Um, and... And what's also very interesting in comparison to a lot of communities, you also have a democratically elected communal board in which there are eight Jewish political parties, and they are called political parties. And all of this with a population of about 10,000 Jews, which puts a country like the United Kingdom with its around quarter of a million core Jewish population to shame. And when you do look at Leopoldstadt today, the very interesting thing of it is, is that Leopoldstadt is only three to five percent Jewish, if you look at the official statistics. But it feels much more like a Jewish area because of all of the synagogues, communal institutions, shops that are located in there. It says something very interesting about Jewish communities around the world in diaspora, that even though a town doesn't have to have a Jewish majority, it can nevertheless feel like a very Jewish environment. That's also why in Krakow, which has a much smaller proportionally Jewish population than Leopoldstadt, I nevertheless call it the Jewish quarter, uh, not just because of its history, but because that is where all of the communal institutions are. That's where Jews meet. I don't know what percentage of Jews from Krakow 
live in Kazimierz, but about 50% of Jews in Vienna live in Leopoldstadt, which is also a very different situation than you have in the United States and Britain, where Jewish communities are much more suburbanized. And I think that all of these aspects together, you can't forget, of course, in Vienna you have a very strong housing policy. All of these contribute to a very, very impressive Jewish communal environment, certainly if you compare it to a town like Warsaw. The Jewish population of Warsaw is likely significantly larger than that in Vienna, but it could learn a lot in terms of that experience. So just to go back, and this can be the final point regarding history, it's 1945. The Jewish community of Vienna, of Austria, we haven't really mentioned other Jewish communities in Austria besides briefly your brother in Salzburg, but it's right after the Holocaust. It's in a country that was part of Germany, where Adolf Eichmann was responsible and had his charts that you can see in the Jewish Museum of where Jews are being deported from. Austria is occupied in a similar way that Germany was occupied. Vienna is split into four zones. Over the upcoming decades, there is going to be this myth of Austria as the first victim of the Nazis. From that situation, how do you transition into this kind of community that we see today? An important aspect of that community as well is the diversity of it, because Vienna has significant Bukhari population, significant Georgian Jewish populations. Now you also have a significant amount of Russian speakers and Ukrainians that have come. How do you go from Austria that becomes a part of the Reich in 38 on the Holocaust? What happens in those almost 80 years from then to today? Very good question. I will describe the transition and then explain two factors that I believe are important in understanding of why that transition happened. After the war, there were only 5,000 Jews in Vienna. They survived the Nazi period. Before the war, there were 200,000 Jews. Vienna re-established itself after the end of the war, but neither the federal government nor the city authorities made any effort to bring Jews who had been expelled back to Vienna. For decades, Austria was presented as Hitler's first victim. It's called the victim thesis, as you mentioned. In April 1946, the first community elections since the end of the war were held. From 1952, for the next three decades until 1982, the president of the IKG came from the Union of Working Jews, the Bund. <laughs> the makeup of Vienna's Jewish community was gradually changing. Few Viennese families had returned after 1945, but instead Jews from Poland, Hungary, and then Czechoslovakia found a new home in Vienna in the post-war years. Some of them had initially, after the end of the war, lived in displaced person camps. Others fled in the wake of political upheaval, such as the Hungarian uprising in 1956. So those are the Jews in Vienna today. They mostly have a Hungarian background. So even though my family comes from Galicia and I speak to my father in Galician Yiddish, I also had a very strong influence of Hungarian Yiddish that is spoken here in Vienna. And as you mentioned, in the 1980s, the Bukharian community started to grow. Bukharian Jews are Jews from Central Asia, Uzbekistan, and their community is growing exponentially. They have their own community and they even have their own political party. Even though in the immediate post-war period, Many Jews mentally still had their cases packed. They weren't sure whether they wanted to stay in Vienna. During the 1970s, the idea gradually took root among some community leaders that they had indeed come to stay and so they must ensure the appropriate infrastructure. So in 1976, a Jewish kindergarten opened and after the terror attacks on the city temple in 1979 and 1981, security at the IKG was bolstered and the professional service is still provided 
started today at all IKG institutions to protect community members. Now, also one thing I would like to mention that in September 2020, a new law was enacted, namely that Holocaust survivors and descendants of Holocaust survivors can claim Austrian citizenship without any complications. This is very unusual considering that Austria does not allow dual citizenship. It has this very obsolete law, yet they made this exception for those kind of people. And I think it's important to spread the word. I've heard that people from the UK have applied, probably because of Brexit. That means that there are many more Austrian Jews than we might know of. Today there are 8,000 Jews registered by the IKG, but many sources estimate that around 15,000 Jews across Austria. As you mentioned, the Unitary Community offers a very diverse palette, covering the whole religious spectrum from very orthodox to liberal, from traditional to secular, and also including Ashkenazi and Sephardi groupings. Today, many Jewish institutions, including the IKG campus in the Prata, which was built in 2009 and is the home of the Tripers High School, the Maimonides Center Retirement Home, the IKG Psychological Center Ezra and the Hakora Sports Club, they're all located in Leopoldstadt, as they were in 1938. But in 1938, 50% of the Leopoldstadt population was Jewish. And as you mentioned today, it's around 3 to 5%. Under the current IKG President Oskar Deutsch, the community here is making a huge effort to open up. The Open Door Day that is organized each autumn is just a part of that. We have the Festival of Jewish Culture and the IKG's annual summer party. Those are also opportunities to get to know the community. And these are just traditionally when the Jewish community introduces its institutions and associations combined with any amount of cultural delight. So I do think Vienna punches above its weight, even though Vienna is not large in size, I would make the claim that we are one of the most active communities in Europe. Now the question of course remains, why is that the case and why hasn't that happened everywhere else? I think that two factors come into play. One, you have to get the younger generation involved. We have eight youth organizations, but you can see at almost every Jewish event, you have a Jewish young person speaking. They are literally given the stage. We have youth magazines. We really try to animate the young generation. And once you try to animate the young generation, you can ensure continuation. The second factor is probably the relationship of the Jewish community and the state in which it's located. So the Jewish community has a very good relationship with the state of Austria, and they really ensure us safety. They provide us financial resources, and they also very much try to cultivate a strong culture of remembrance. So I think these two factors come into play when we talk about these things. You mentioned that there are eight Jewish political parties within the Jewish community. I was really curious what the sort of scope of Jewish politics is in modern Austria, especially in regard to like cultural elements. I think you mentioned that there's a Bukharian Jewish political party, as well as the way religion. And then I'm wondering how Zionism manifests within this as well. And I also wanted to say that your points that you just made about what has allowed the Austrian Jewish community to thrive in the way that it has is very actually similar to what the Melbourne Bundist said as well because they made the point about how the youth movement is really what's allowed the organization to thrive and the way that they empower the youth to take on leadership roles in the community. So there was that question I wanted to ask about Jewish politics in modern Austria, but I also wanted to ask about the Freedom Party, ironically, very far right, essentially almost neo-Nazi party in Austria. I was wondering if there's any way in which that's affecting the Jewish community these days because I've been watching polls very closely.
closely and it looks like they are polling in first place, which is kind of terrifying. So if you just wanted to touch on those questions, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, and the election that's next year. Yes, the election is coming up. I can already give you a little taste of our relationship to the FPÖ, the Freiheitliche Partei. When we have a panel discussion and the year organizes a few panel discussions inviting all the candidates of the parties, we do not invite this party. They usually are excluded in our discussions. So the question of how our relationship is with that party, it's non-existent. As you can imagine, we do not have a special liking for that particular party. The first question you asked, the Jewish political landscape here in Vienna. Our last election was held in 2022. I will list down the eight parties. We have Atid, which is Team Oskar Deutsch. He's currently in power. He has eight mandates, so he makes up the majority. We have the Association of Bukhari Jews. I think they're in second place. Kehille, Team Jakob Frenkel. That's an interesting combination of orthodoxy and modernity. Chai, Jewish life. Then we have the Association of Georgian Jews here in Vienna, also have a few mandates. And the Bund Sozialdemokratische Juden, Avoda. So that's the Bund of Social Democrats. Me and Zach got to meet the candidate of the Bund party recently. How does Zionism, I mean, we like to talk about Zionism versus diasporism as like a paradigm we'd like to be moving Jewish politics towards, if that's even possible. How does that manifest within political discussions within Austrian Jewish communities? I would make the claim that there's a clear dominant popular stream of being a Zionist. It doesn't matter which political party you belong to. It doesn't matter if you are part of the Bund, the Social Democrats. Usually Zionism is the mainstream affiliation here in Vienna. We do not have very much anti-Zionist attempts and efforts here that come from the Jewish community. We have a very small section, but they aren't officially part of the IK. Those are usually Jews coming as exchange students to Vienna, engaging in several organizations. So yes, that's the case here in Vienna. But maybe Zach would like to expand on that because he also got to know a bit of it. I think it's very interesting, this phenomena, and a lot of it is centered around, from my understanding, around the Central European University, which is now in Vienna, used to be in Budapest until the Orban government threw them out. And they do have, you know, very, very progressive or self-identifying, very progressive people, usually from the United States that come to, you know, what is quite a complicated landscape historically, have very, you know, radical opinions right off the bat without really being involved in the local Jewish community, which in terms of like political effect, and discussing this differentiation between just like anti-Zionism as a primary perspective within Jewish politics and something that is more diasporist, as we like to call it. I think Vienna is a very interesting example of a community that, despite everything that happened, has still made a very, very good attempt at creating a place where various Jewish communities can thrive and have internal democracy. Uh, we might even dare say it, some sort of national cultural autonomy that is very, very worth investigating. Certainly, I've learned a lot just in my recent visits, and it's been quite an inspiration in many aspects. Not all, of course. I had the pleasure of listening to, uh, pleasure of listening to one of Oskar Deutsch's uh, speeches. I try to pick up as much as I could. I still think it's a very interesting source for inspiration for Jewish communities around the world.
world. And I think that there's a lot of work that is done there very well. Idol, thank you so much for joining us. If there are any final initiatives that you would like to talk about, we haven't talked too much about the year. You mentioned Likrat, but if you'd like to make any final points, you can do it here. There are many things you can still talk about. We didn't talk too much about Red Vienna from 1919 all the way until 1934 when Austro-fascism entered Austria. That might be interesting. We could also talk about the year more, but I think we've got enough material for now, unless there's something you would really like to touch upon. Let's leave it at that. Thank you so much for coming on. Definitely would be interested. There's a lot more to cover, but like we only have so much time. Thank you for all your insights and the history lesson. I really had a joy and also receiving your perspective and your input as well. Always very interesting for me. And yeah, if you want to create more material, I'm always open for that. Taken